Let's go to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8. Some of you were in the book of Isaiah study, and so you haven't been with us, so I'm going to back up and give just a quick review of where we've been at. Nehemiah is an Old Testament book, and it's right after that period of what we call the exile. Israel had rebelled against God. They'd gone through the periods of the kings, David, Solomon, uh, Saul, David, Solomon, uh, and then they divided through civil war. They lasted for several generations, and then the northern kingdom was taken off the scene because of their idolatry, and then the southern kingdom was taken off the scene. For 70 years, the land of Israel lies absolutely empty and fallow because they had missed 70 different Sabbath years. And so God is recouping that period of time that, uh, that they didn't obey his law. And so then Nehemiah comes and, and uh, just, again, we mentioned this last week, there was three different major returns from the foreign countries back to Jerusalem to try to rebuild. Zerubbabel, who was a governor with the prophet Haggai, they led one group. They come back in that 536 B.C. area. They're going to try to rebuild, and they get the temple rebuilt. Then in the middle 400s, then Ezra brings a group back. They're going to try to rebuild the city, but they don't get very far because their enemies living and camping round about the different tribes report to the emperor that say that these people are trying to start a new revolution. It's a lie, but the emperor response says, put it on hold. Twelve years later, Nehemiah is working for that emperor in his court. He's his cupbearer. And he says, can I go back and I'll oversee. You trust me and um, I want to see my peoples get rebuilt. And so he goes and spends about twelve years there as governor. He shows up and starts the rebuilding project. When That's chapters one and two. Gives you that background. Then chapters uh, three gives you the name of the people who are working and how they get into the project, which they complete by the way in 52 days, getting the vault wall built. Chapters 4 and 5 and 6 give you the opposition. 4 and 5 is against the people. Chapter 6 is against Nehemiah, how they attack him personally, get people to question his integrity, his character, his way of operation. And uh, they really discourage Nehemiah. He becomes fearful. But he continues in the work. And then we come to chapter 7 that the work is done and done and finished in 52 days. And so now the city has got walls around it. But the problem is the city is large the area, but they don't have homes because the internal structure's not been rebuilt. In fact, they don't have a lot of people living there because nobody wants to live in, a, in the, the rubble. And most of the Jews have lived in outskirts. And so now Nehemiah is the governor. He has to rebuild, try to get people to come back, rebuild the city population. And so what happens in chapter 7, he has to secure the city, get it safe. People aren't going to move in if it's not safe. And then what he has to do is get people working in that city, living in that city, and knowing that the temple is the greatest and the most important uh, draw to the city of Jerusalem, he's got to focus on the priest. Getting the right priest who are there, who are legitimate, who can get this thing up and rolling and get people started doing the pilgrimages again. So chapter 7, what happens is he finds a genealogical um, table, and that's going to help him to identify which priest should be there, which ones are able to worship in the temple, lead the worship. And so chapter 7 gives us all that different details. And so it lists as well, the peoples going all the way back to Zerubbabel a hundred years before, which priests came back and did they intermarry? Did they keep their line pure? Because that was part of the impact. And so they're going through that process of identifying the priests, and so they're worrying about getting the temple up and running. It comes to their attention while they're doing this that we have some feast days 
that this is all getting done right about the time we have feast days. There's three of them that are right on the calendar. And so what they do in chapter 8 is they start celebrating the the feast days. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are the celebrations of these three feasts in consecutive order. And uh, those feasts are very important ones. The Feast of the Trumpets, it comes at a harvest time. It's a celebration. Then the Atonement. This is the one that you're familiar with mostly, that they put their hands on the one animal and they have... um, uh, I just I just blanked. What do they call that? The scapegoat. The scapegoat. They get rid of the scapegoat, and he's supposed to be carrying away the sins of Israel. And so that's a fasting time. And then your last one is your tabernacles, where they build the booths and they have a week long celebration, recalling what God did in the wilderness. And uh, so those are the the first and last one are celebratory feasts. The middle one is more of a fasting repentance time, a penance time. You're going to see in chapter eight, nine, and ten this carrying out now. So what they do is to get this thing rolling, a lot of people don't understand the feast. So chapter 8, they stand up and they start reading the Word of God. The people ask for the Word of God. If you look at chapter 8, verse 1, the people approach Ezra, who, by the way, Ezra has been there for a dozen years. He's the prophet priest. And they ask him, can you start reading Scripture to us? It's something, we've got the temple built, we're getting the priest set up, but we're missing the Bible because the Bible isn't something that we have a lot of knowledge with anymore and a lot of interaction. And so Ezra starts leading in the, in the Scripture reading. In fact, he gets it listed twice. If you look down in the verses, he lists 13 at one time, and then another 13 scribes and Levites who will read with him and as they read they're going to be explaining to the people what they read. We need to come back to that in a minute. And so they're having this huge group of people there. Now, according to chapter two, 8 verse 2 there's probably tens of thousands of people gathered for this Bible reading. And it mentions the, la- the men, it mentions the ladies and those who are able to understand the kids. So they're doing the entire, the entire group. Now that seems like it's just a no-brainer to us, but understand back in Bible days, typically in the worship service they would focus more on the men. And the ladies and the kids, they would get leftovers, if anything. And so this time they're saying, no, we want everybody there. We want everybody to read. And so they've got other teachers there. They're trying to explain, and they're going through this process. Now, what happens, according to chapter 8, as we start getting into a little bit deeper, and this is where we left off last week, it says in verse 2 they have to bring the people together. It says in verse 3 that he reads, and it gives us the time frame that he's reading, if you look at verse 3. So he stands up. We don't know what portion of the Bible he's reading. Some thinks it's just the book of Deuteronomy. Some think it's the entire first five books. But what they do is they read. He starts off with God, please be blessed. And then the people stand for the reading of Scripture, which is in their culture very, very important. Okay, we're going to stand and we're going to show as they read. But they also not just stand. This is where we left off last week, which is no problem if we were to stand for Scripture reading. But as I was pointing out, if we're going to say this verse demands that we stand, for scripture reading every occasion, which there's nothing wrong with that. It also says they lifted up their hands and then they bowed their head, their heads and they went down to the ground. So if we're going to do and we're going to say this verse demands that we stand, then we should do everything this verse talks about. Okay, and I think that would be a little bit hard in the pews. 
bowing down. I think you'd clop your head or so. And so, uh, be that as it may, they're showing respect. That's the point. They're, when they lift up their hands like this, they're open to the Lord. They're showing that they have great respect for what's happening. And then we read verse 3 and verse 8. It says that they're reading in the Word. And it gives us the time frame that they read from morning until midday that the people are there and the people are listening to it. So we're talking five, six hours, maybe, you know, eight o'clock to you know, one o'clock, that they're reading the scriptures and the people are standing and it says that they are attentive for this whole period of time. Now, again, you, you, we, there's, there's no sense beating ourselves up because we don't have five hours worth of Bible reading. That's not our typical, uh, our typical worship time. And, I, and I, you know, I have a tendency or others would have a tendency of saying, well, doesn't that show that we're less spiritual? You know, the difference is, how often do these people read Scripture? You know, not, not to defend ourselves what we do, but let's put it in perspective. How often have they been reading their Bibles? They haven't been, okay? And when do they get to read their Bible, quote-unquote? They don't. Why not? They don't have them. They don't have them. So it's easy for us to get beaten up or, or to beat ourselves up and say, well, we're not as spiritual as them because we don't stand for five or six hours, Okay? And that means that we are very shallow spiritually. Well, the flip side of it is, you probably spend that length of time reading your Bible in the course of a week or two. That you're doing it, okay, on a regular basis. And that, um, you know, and again, can we all improve on our Bible reading? That, that's a truism. Okay, but the point is these people, it's something novel and new to them. They are very excited because they haven't been used to this for a period of time. And so then they're, they're hearing the word of God. Verse 8, it says, now here's the key phrases that go in this chapter that we need to pause for a moment and talk about. They read in the book of the law distinctly. They gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Any of you have different translations that may give different wording for they gave the sense and cause them to understand the meeting. Anybody have anything? They expounded it? Anything else? They tra does it say translate? They translated it? Okay. Okay, that's giving you a better sense. That expounding, the explaining, and the translating is probably the real sense here that what they're going to do, and we need to talk about that in a moment, where it says that the people, unless, the word that shows up several times in this text is understanding that they gave the sense or they try to help them to understand. So you've got to ask this question. Why is it these people who are there at that Bible, that reading, why, they're Jewish. Why is it they don't understand the law or they don't understand what's being read? Why does somebody have to give them a translation? Okay, they haven't heard it in a long time. Okay. Any other reasons why they have to give understanding? They've been in idol worship in the past, okay? So they've been away from the scriptures. Why would they have to give an understanding? What, what language do these people speak? They speak Hebrew. What language was it written in? No, no. When Moses wrote it back in 1400, what's he writing in? Probably Hebrew. So why do they have to give an understanding and interpret Their language had degraded. Is it possible that over a period of time our language differs? Okay, so we think through and say, okay, let's, let's, why do they have to explain this and spend so much time? Okay, is it different for you and me? 
Okay, you come and if some of you did this last week. You were, you were saying, hey, I read the story ahead of time. So that when you get up and speak about it, you're able to have some of that background information. That's to our advantage. They didn't have that advantage. They're basically standing up and they're reading something these people may not have familiarity with. We say we have to remind ourselves they don't have multiple copies of the law. Okay, they don't have a pocket Bible like you do. They don't have it on their app. They don't have access to it. So for some of these people, this might be a new experience for them. They've heard traditions, but they haven't heard the reading of the Word at this, in this way, and shape, and form. Remember in the culture that they're living in, a lot of these people have been challenged by intermarriage. So if you intermarry, what does that bring into your family? Different types of religious views. What does that do for the Word of God? It can diminish it, okay, because those different points of views. Many no longer, as we're going to see in chapter 8, they realize, hey, there's a feast day. What do we do at this feast day? They don't even know about how to celebrate the feast day. And so they've lost a lot of their identity in some of these secondary feasts, and so it's, they're, they're dealing with it. Here's an issue that sometimes we forget. It's a thousand years different in when Moses wrote this and when they are reading it. Does a thousand years make a difference in language? Sure. Does English change in hundreds of years? Oh, yeah. Okay. Let's go back to the Wycliffe Bible, 1382. Read it and figure it out. Okay? Yeah, you're going, aye, aye, aye. Why? Okay, but that's English. Okay? And I still struggle. Every time I try to read this thing, I struggle with, okay, exactly what... I know it's that passage of take my yoke upon you. Okay. But is that, would that be difficult for you to read? And that's English. Okay, does it, does it happen in cultures that languages at times change in what, are, what it could be written? Does our language, do words change in our language? Okay, I mean, the, yeah, the, the, the word, it's a silly word that, that we use, but we, they used to say, oh, we hope you have a gay old time. Not anymore, right? Has that changed? A lot of words have changed, okay, even in our English language. So you've got to stop and think, and let's add to this. The Hebrews, when they came out, and Moses is writing it, we think it was written in the Hebrew language, okay? During that period of time, where have these people been for the last decades? Where have they been living? Not in Israel or that region. Where have they been living? Different lands, okay? Let's take for the, for the most part. They've been living over by Susa, Babylon, so you're, you're trying to hang on to your, your um, native tongue. What happens in most every time, even if you have your native tongue and you're hanging on to it, but you're living in a different culture? It, 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 it naturally adapts, doesn't it? Don't people start throwing in other words, and then all of a sudden it starts, it's, there's a blend in the language. By the way, that's where Aramaic comes from. Aramaic is Semitic, but it's a blend of some of the other languages and the influences of some of the Eastern cultures. So by the time of the New Testament, what they were talking is they were talking Aramaic, okay, which was a blend of Old Hebrew. and a, Isn't there a language in this region that has a blend? Okay. And you know, it's not pure old school German. But it's called, 
Yeah, and it has its own uniqueness. Okay? And that happens, I mean, you know, do different, do different areas in the United States have different unique blends of English? Yeah, there's some people down south that you can't understand what they are saying whatsoever. Okay, that you have to listen very closely to them, right? Right, okay. So that makes perfect sense that if they're standing up and reading ancient Hebrew, that a number of them are going, duh. Okay, yeah, what, did you, what was that word? Because that word may have fallen out. And so they have to give the sense, they have to give the understanding. And so what they're doing to help it out is they, this is what they're doing with the people. They read it, which is important. They give the sense, literally, as Kevin, I think you said, your translation says they interpret. That's the word, okay, where it gives the sense. They're interpreting it. Okay, they're giving the, the, better, the better rendering. Okay, by the, by the way, is it happening right now that we're getting a new language of English called texting? Okay, does that read different? Yeah, okay, and so is there going to be a generational thing that's going, to, that's going to impact in our culture? Okay, I got one for you. How many schools are teaching how to, how to do cursive? Is that going to have impact in time? Sure, and so these people, they, that's what they're dealing with. They're dealing with a tongue that they're familiar with, but they don't know it totally, and so they have to give the understanding. That makes sense now. That's why I say the phrase, the term understand is given six times. So there, there's a reason why they're spending five, six hours, because it's not just the reading. What are they doing? Yeah, they're, they're doing more than, okay, exactly what that was. And so then the idea is that they have to apply it, so they're giving the interpretation, the explanation, and application. That's kind of like preaching, okay? You give the reading, and sometimes we give interpretation, right? Because the language, the ancient language would be helpful. Then we give the explanation, then we give the application of it. And so the teachers who are doing it, Ezra has picked a number of people who are very adept at it. And they're doing it in the midst. It seems like they read, they stop, they explain, they apply. They read, they stop, they explain, they apply. That makes a lot of sense, does it not? So it's not an overload of just reading and then... Okay, so they're blending it together. And so it's repeated, they do it on the second day. According to verse 18, they do this for seven days. That's a lot of Bible study. But again, understand where they're coming from. This is new. This is eye-opening. This is getting the fullness of the Scripture that they haven't had in a long time. They know tidbits, okay, but now they're getting full explanation. And so, you know, they're almost like, give me a comparison, like, what type of person would they be in churches today that say, give me more, give me more, give me more? Like a new convert who's just, yeah, just saved, and they're so hungry for it. That's kind of where they're at, okay, uh, that they're, they're explaining it. So what you have, and I want to get you to catch this, is there's an intellectual response to the Word of God. They're understanding it. And I think this is these different responses I want you to catch. Church means nothing to us if there isn't an intellectual interaction with the Word of God. Do you know what I mean by that? If you come and sit and say, lay it on me, hopefully something catches, what's going to catch? Nothing. What are you going to get out of it? Nothing other than what did people wear, what was going on, because there has to be an intellectual interaction with the Word of God. There's got to be thinking with, through what it says and how, how it applies. and So that's very important. Let's go a step further. Okay, Then it says in verse 9, and this is interesting, as the people 
Look at what he has to do to tell the people to overcome. Verse 9. Now, Nehemiah the governor, Tershatha, Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught, they say to the people, This day is holy unto the, the Lord your God. Stop mourning, stop weeping. Why do they say that? All the people are weeping when they heard the words of the law. And they say to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. This day is holy unto the Lord our God. Neither be sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What was the overriding reaction when they heard the word? What's that? Repentance. There is sorrow for what they have done. Because as they're hearing the word of God, if they're reading the book of Deuteronomy, did it not say, let's refresh our, our book of Deuteronomy, didn't it say, if you obey me, I will bless you, but I will curse you and punish you if you don't obey. What can these people put together? They have not been obeying as a nation. That's why they're in the pickle that they're at. They're realizing their parents, their grandparents, the previous generations, what they are basically doing, they are reaping what? Yeah, and so they're feeling the guilt factor that they as a nation, a covenant people. Now here's the difference. You might say, well, wait a minute, they shouldn't be guilty over what their parents... Remember, they're a covenant nation. The covenant for them is passed down generation to generation, okay? And it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's different than what you and I have, okay? And so they're feeling this sense of guilt that we as a people have dishonored God and they are so overwhelmed they can't get over the guilt, okay? They can't get over, should I say, the sorrowing and they, that's inappropriate. Should there be a sorrow when we realize of sin? Yeah, so it's an appropriate response. But they're doing it at the time of feast days. Remember we said of there's three feast days. Two of them are celebratory. Okay? One of them is for penance. What are they emphasizing? What are they getting stuck on? The, the penance only. And they're saying, wait a minute, the first feast day, which they're, the three are right in a row, the first day is a feast of celebration of joy over God's grace. And one of the things that they were to do at those feast days, both the first and the third one, is they were supposed to give goods to other people. They were to be sharing. Okay? They were to be uh, you know, helping out the poor. Do they have poor people with them at this scripture reading? Yeah, we've re read about that. Some of the people have gotten so poor that what did they do with their lands? They sold them. What did they do with their kids? They sold them. So they got a lot of poverty going on. And there's a lot of famine in the land. And so they're filled with guilt and remorse. And the leadership is saying, okay, let's get this right. Our first thing should be, let's do some celebration. Let's do some charity and loving one another. Then we're going to have a, a time of national confession. That's chapter 9. Okay, they'll get to it. So they're trying to get them to put it in order. And again, it's appropriate, they're, but they're strongly encouraged. Let's move forward, okay? And, and by the way, is it difficult at times when you realize the heinousness of your sin? Is it tough to move forward? Do you ever find those moments? That you say, please forgive me, and if you haven't forgiven me, please, I really mean it, forgive me, and if I haven't said it right, please forgive me. And we have to remember, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to... Yeah, we may have trouble forgiving 
ourselves, but he forgives us. And so he, they're trying to get them to recognize that and move forward a little bit. And so this is the emotional response to the word of God. This is normal. This is natural. There should be an intellectual interaction. There should be an emotional reaction. Okay. Now, does that mean that we preachers should prey on the emotions? No, because we don't want just an emotional reaction. If there's only emotions, then how long does it last? Very short time because they last as long as the emotion lasts. And so there needs to be an intellectual interaction. Should there be an emotional reaction when you hear the Word of God? There should be. There should be. When we hear the Word of God, we should be not just thinking intellectually, but it should move us emotionally to some degree. And so what happens then? Then the people, verse 13, they respond. We go down a little bit further. The second day we're gathered together, and Ezra stood, and he tells the people. And verse 14 goes on. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the people were to have their Feast of Tabernacles. They were to be in those booths. Okay? Forgive me if I say it quickly. I'm going to say booths. And I'm trying to say booths, but it doesn't come out that way. Okay? So if you're visiting today and I talk about the Feast of the Booths, Okay, that's the way I say it bad. Okay, I'm trying to say booths. Okay. I know I, my tongue gets twisted. I'll blame it on my Minnesota accent. Okay. That the children of Israel, they dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, that they should publish and proclaim in all the cities and have, and then it tells you what they're doing. Make the little booth and live there for seven days to represent what your ancestors did years ago and how God took care of them in living out in those tents. I'll say tense, that's easier. Okay, uh, living in that way. So the people want more. They learned about the booth, and they wanted to celebrate it, every one of them. Okay, it says, and that's a key word, verse 16. They all want to do this. We're going to come back. This is, this is very pivotal, verse 16, where it says that, so the people went forth, they brought, the, the, uh, they brought them, made themselves those tents, everyone upon the roof of his house, the courts. And so the emphasis is every one of them. We need to come back because that's very important in a second. But all the congregation is doing it, and there's very great gladness. Those are key words in here. So obedience to the word of God is going to produce joy. Joy. Now here's your third interaction, willful response. Okay, you have intellectual. What, what am I learning? Okay, emotional response. Okay, how am I going to respond emotionally to God? And then willful reaction. Uh, intellect, emotion, and will. The three major parts of our being that were made in the image of God. Intellect, emotion, and will. The will is, what am I going to do with the word of God that I've heard? Is that part of, should that be part of our Sunday worship? Should we have intellectual reaction with the Word of God? Should we have an emotional reaction with the Word of God? Should we have a willful reaction with the Word of God? How am I going to live it out? And that's what these people have at this time. And so then there's great joy because they're starting to enact the Word of God in their lives. And so you understand. You've been there. You've done this. Okay, whether you do it weekly or it's happened to you on multiple occasions, you know exactly what happens. Here's a phrase that we need to pause for a second. It says, And all the congregation of them that were come out of the captivity, they made those tents and sat under the, under the tent. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done this. Okay? And so we read that and go, oh man, they didn't celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles ever since they moved into the Promised Land around 1300 B.C. And we're talking, you know, 400 B.C. 
They never did it at all. That's your first reading of it. That's what it gives you the sense of it. However, according to Second Chronicles, we read that when Solomon became king, there was a great revival, and they celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacles, and the people made booths. Uh-oh. What do we have now? We got a contradiction in Scripture. It's unreliable. Oh, wait. By the way, in the book of Ezra, in the last 12 years, uh, in, the, in the last 100 years, when Zerubbabel led the people back, when they got back and they built the temple, they also celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. So we know of two times that it's recorded where they did celebrate it. But this passage says they never did it since the days of Joshua. Contradiction? Explanation? Any idea? You're close to it. You're really, yeah. You're really close to it. You're really. You're almost hitting it on the head. Okay. Yeah. The key is. What did you just say? The whole nation. The key is everyone did it. The reason back in the days of Joshua that everyone did it in the days of Joshua was because everyone was living together. They were still migrating all the way through the book of Joshua. When they migrated, as they were conquering the land, they migrated as a whole. So wherever they went, it was only in the book of Judges that they said, spread out. Your tribe goes here, yours goes here, yours goes here. That ends up Joshua, Joshua going into Judges. And so the last time, every one of the tribes together celebrated it was in the days of Joshua. When Solomon celebrated it, it wasn't necessarily national, but it was definitely down in Jerusalem. When Ezra celebrated it, it was only a small remnant of individuals that did it when they were rebuilding. What's the point here? The point is when he talks about all the Jews who were present and there, there wasn't any exception. That this is now a national celebration of what national Jews are there at that time. So not since the days of Joshua was there such a universal, such a corporate form of worship of all ages, of all tribes representative, of all the people who were in the land. That seems to be the sense of it, is now it is really impacting, because they, what, what's moved these people so much? The reading of the word for an extended period of time. And so it's not a contradiction, it's just an explanation of what is this passage stressing. If you read it through, the passage talks about all the people, everyone. And so it's a, it's a national thing that's happening of all the Jews who are present at that time. So it makes a difference. After the celebration, the people come back. Verse 18. They come back and they say, hey, we've had a great celebration these seven days of that feast. And what we would like is we would like a little bit more Bible. And so it says, verse 18, day by day from the first until the last, they read in the book and they kept the feast for seven days. On the eighth day, there's a solemn assembly according to the manner. And then they shift gears. Okay? And so they have this assembly and so they're doing this every day. They're reading, which is fine. Okay? By the way, during the feast days, you don't do your regular job. So what they're doing during the feast days is they're focusing on that whole idea of let's get the word of God and it's novel, it's new, it's impacting them. Here's some comments. 
You, if you're going to make a difference in people's lives, whether you be a dad, whether you be a Christian businessman, whether you're working with other believers, however you want to apply it, the spiritual influence, the person who's trying to make an influence, understands there needs to be a balance between work and worship. Is there there a, a pressing time for Nehemiah to get this city built, get it secured? Very pressing. But he realizes, hey, we need to take a break. We need a break. By the way, they've worked... They've worked, if we go back to the previous chapters, how long during the day were they working? From sun up, sundown. What were, they, what were they wearing to bed? Their work clothes and only taking them off for infrequent baths. When they were standing there working, what else were they holding? Weapons. So they, have they been under the gun for 52 days? Yeah, so we need a break. And the break is, okay, let's do this worship. And so he recognizes that even pressing work needs to stop for opportunities of worship. And that's a very, very important principle. Never ignore the greatest needs of people around you. Let's take your kids. Let's take your, the people that you're working with, the people you're caring for. Some of you are caring for elderly parents. The greatest need is still the spiritual hunger that people have. There is always a need for personal time in God's Word. Always. No matter what our background No matter what our age or gender, no matter what our status in society, Nehemiah needed this, Ezra needed this, okay? It's true even of those who are very, very busy. We need the Word of God. We need the Word of God. And is there time for corporate public worship? Is that essential and critical? Well, you're going to say yes because you're here and that's what we're trying to do today. So you get that point, but it's a point that we want to pass on to others. Let's go a little bit further, okay? The benefits of taking in the Word of God are plentiful. And here's an, this story is all about taking in the Word of God in an exhaustive way. Let's just read a scripture. Tell me what the benefit is of focusing on scripture. These things have written unto you that believe in the name of the Son God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you, and that you may believe on the name. He's talking to believers, okay? And so you... What is your benefit of taking in the Word of God? What does it do for us? It gives us assurance of salvation. That's critical for us. Now, some of you never struggled with it. But some of you are like me. You struggled. Yes, I prayed to get saved, but did I really mean it? Did God really hear me? Did I understand totally? The Word of God helps us to say, yes, we are, and points it out, because otherwise the enemy wants us to doubt. Because if we doubt, we don't move forward. And so giving, giving assurance is critical. Here's one for you. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. A benefit. It's so apparent. What's the benefit? Okay, joy in our life. Real joy. Real happiness. That isn't just, oh, okay, I'm really happy because my team won. That doesn't last real long for some of us. Okay, I'm really happy because I had the most exciting shopping experience. Okay, like we heard earlier, going shopping for groceries. It was so much fun. Okay, uh, no, this is where real joy is. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you will and it should be done. What's the benefit? How does the word, taking in the word of God help you and me? Answers prayer. It improves our prayer life. Okay. And, and I don't know, maybe you're, you're the exception, but the majority of us in this room, we want to improve our prayer life. We know that we need to improve our prayer life. Well, one of the starts is get into the Word. Get more into the Word. Here's a benefit. These things have I spoken unto you that you, in me you might have peace. In the world you're going to have problems. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. 
What's the word going to do? Give us peace, okay? And help us to go through difficulties. Now, again, you might be the rare bird in this room, but most have trials. Most of us in this room have difficulties. Some of you, you lost a loved one. Some of you, it's job situations. Some of you, it's health situations. And you look and say, how do I manage the word of God, the word of God, the word of God? Now are you clean through the word which I have spoken unto you? A clear benefit. What is it? By taking in the word of God, what does it produce in our lives? Okay, that idea of that cleansing, that purification from sin. The idea is getting over sin. Not letting those besetting sins, those infrequent sin, those frequent sins take over our life. But there's power to overcome sin. Which, which one of us doesn't need that? Okay, here, I'll give you another benefit. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Okay, either the word will keep you from sin or... Sin will keep you from the word, okay? So the word keeps us from sin. Not just cleanses us, but it keeps us from sin. Let's go a little bit further. Your word is lamp unto my feet and light unto my path. What's the benefit of the word of God? Direction, guidance, yeah, okay? Making right decisions. And so we can keep on going with this and saying, how does the word of God benefit our lives? As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Obvious benefit, okay, maturing growing in our Christian life. The need for the Word of God. The need for the Word of God. Let's take it here. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, he says, but you shall meditate therein day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then you shall make that way prosperous. You shall have good success. It's very clear. So Joshua, you're going to have a successful ministry if you keep in my word. And it's so important for you and me, the same type of thing, to be able to do, know what God says. In 2 Timothy, he's talking about the importance of the word of God, how it's inspired. And, and you all know this passage. Uh, from a child you have known the scriptures. All scripture is inspired by God, profitable. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training. Why is it profitable? So that the man of God may be adequate. He goes on, he says, equipped for every good work, empowered, enabled to know what are good works and to be able to do them. And so there's so many benefits from the Word of God. The people back here, they got the benefit, they got the joy, they got the instruction. You and I are given so many, so many opportunities and options to say, get into the Word, get into the Word, and get the Word into you. So to increase our understanding, we got to pause and say, okay, how do we improve this? How do we benefit? We, we want the benefits, but how do we improve our understanding of Scripture? Well, there's some simple things we can do, okay? One is do what they did, start off with prayer and saying, God, help me to understand it. But one of the simplest ways of getting to understand the Scripture is simply read it. Read it. And then after you've read it, read it again, okay, and go over it and over it and over it. And just because, you know, how many of you has this happened? You get something out of the Bible, you go back over that same story months later, and you get some more out of that same story. And you say to yourself, I didn't see that before. Were you dumb? No, you were just growing in your life. And it's just, it just, the way God, God's word is amazing. I mean, it is such a powerful tool. It, for me, every time I go through a text, it seems like more stuff bounces out of it. And it's just so rich and so fulfilling. I think that the contemporary helps is important, okay? That we use contemporary helps. And by the way, for you and me, contemporary helps can include using other translations that can help us to understand. Because they can be beneficial to us. 
because other translations might change a word or here and use a more contemporary understanding. I'll give you one word that shows up, and, and I, my preference is King James because I'm so used to it, but there's that word that always shows up that you may be perfect. What, what do we think of perfect? Sinless, right? That's not what that word means. It just means maturing. Um, the, the conversation of your life. When we think conversation, what do we think of? How we talk. But in that conversation of your life, it's... Okay, it's, it's so much more. And so contemporary helps are very, very helpful to you and me, and they're simple. They're very easily and readily available for us. Be under good, able teachers as well. Personally, do what you have learned. One of the best ways to learn Scripture... But now, this is for me. I don't know if it works for you. One of the best ways for me to memorize Scripture is to try quoting it and using it after I've tried to commit it to memory. It, it kind of goes like this way. One of the best ways... I, I, meet, I meet Larry, shake his hand... And I'm going to forget his name in 10 seconds. Unless one of the keys is use his name in the conversation. Because it helps me to replant his name. Same thing as in scripture memory. If I'm taking a passage, it is helpful if I can apply it in some setting to quote it. And to just, in, it just kind of you know, ingrains it a little bit better. Same with uh, practicing the scripture. God can... God can see that you love his word, or can he? The question is, can he see you love his word by the way you interact with the word? Hey, I was, um, I'll close with this. Uh, I remember a seminary professor telling us that one day he went preaching in a church, and it was over towards the northeastern part of the state. It was a small country church, and he said he got there, and he was supposed to do the Sunday school, filling the pulpit for the pastor, doing Sunday school, and then the morning service. He said it was a weird experience, okay? There was a good number of people in this little country church, but he said, okay, let's take our Bibles, and let's go to such and such a place. And he said everybody looked around at each other, and he couldn't figure out what was going on, and he's opening his Bible, and he didn't hear what... Typically, you would want to hear if you're speaking. You want to hear pages going. There was none of that. He says there was this weird silence. And he kind of looked around. He said, do any of you have a Bible? And not a single person in this church had a Bible. It claimed to be a Bible-believing church and preaching church. But not a single person. And he says, does anybody have Bibles that we can get? And the janitor sitting over there jumped up and said, hey, I think there's a box of them downstairs. So the janitor ran downstairs and came up with a whole box of pew Bibles. They distributed them to everybody in the class. They did the class. And he said, during the class, people were going, wow. Oh, that's interesting. I never knew that. Getting all these comments that were going, they said, that is so neat. And so they wrap up the class and the people were saying, that was so, we've never done that. We've never really done a Bible study with the Bibles in our laps. And guess what? There's like 20 minutes before the church started. The janitor came around and collected every one of the Bibles. And not only did he think this was good, but so did the people. They put all the Bibles away and put them back in the basement. And then come the preaching service. It's easy for you and me to pick on that church. But if that's our same attitude, and the difference could be we may have a Bible in our lap. But if we're not interacting with it, what good does it do? Okay, let's get ready to interact with the Word of God. Okay, thanks for listening.